If you uh, have a copy of the Bible, I would encourage you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 40 again. If, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, that's okay. You can find it uh, printed out in the bulletin. Uh, we're doing a series through Isaiah this fall, and this morning we're going to be again in chapter 40. If you remember last week, uh, Isaiah uh, tells us that we have a job to do, that is to go out and share the good news. Go tell it. Go tell it on a mountain. Go shout it, uh, because the news about what God has done through Jesus is great. This morning, he's going to take a little different turn in the chapter, and he's, he's going to circle back and reiterate, kind of repeat again and again, that God is truly great, and you've got to know that. Uh, in other words, the point this morning is going to be, your view of God matters immensely for your life. Your view of God matters immensely for your life. Uh, one writer said this, maybe, see if you agree with it. What comes into a person's mind when they think about God is the most important thing about the person. Think about that. The most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God. Let's hear what comes to Isaiah's mind this morning. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that won't topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you then compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Don't you know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This is God's word. Those last verses are pretty famous. Uh, maybe the ones before it aren't as famous. 
but in a way they're just as important. Because you can't renew your strength unless you also renew and refresh your view of God, your portrait of God. Uh, We live in a society, don't we, where comparisons are everywhere. We're comparing things all the time. Uh, There's nothing that you have that you can't compare it and shop it around. Your insurance rates, uh, you know, people will actually call you about that every day if you really want to shop it around. They'll call you whether you ask them to or not. Uh, You can compare your clothes, you can compare your house where you live, the schools your kids go to, Uh, you can compare the cable service that you have or don't have, or the streaming service, or the package you want from the streaming service, the comparison, comparison, comparison. Our comparisons are making comparisons always good, though. There's some things, I think, that just aren't, they're not really the kind of things that you ought to be comparing, number one. And then then also, what does it do to my heart and your heart if we're just constantly comparing, 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 moving on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, even though it might only be just marginally better? I mean, imagine, for example, if you're married, what if your spouse began to compare you to another man or another woman? Oh, you know, that, what a wonderful husband he is. Why can't you be more like that? What a wonderful woman that is. Why can't you be more like her? What would you think? You jerk, right? You, you would want to bring out your hand and whew, smack, right? Because it, we know what a marriage is supposed to be, right? Even though it doesn't always work out that way, we know what a marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be what we vow it to be, which is forsaking all others, I give myself to you. You and only you. In other words, marriage is a relationship that's one and only. Therefore, comparison is out of bounds because there's just one. Same thing with a relationship with God. Isaiah says here, God has offered to people a personal relationship with him like a marriage. We saw that last week. God's gospel, his good news, is a marriage proposal. That means that we have to stop comparing him. And yet, the thing we do all the time is compare him just like we do our insurance rates. Just like we do the color of the carpet. If you'll look at your bulletin, uh, right there in the middle of the order of worship, there's an outline for you to follow the sermon today. Isaiah shows us three things. First, he talks about seeing the incomparable God. Second, he talks about playing the comparison game. And then lastly, he talks to us about making the hope exchange. We want to talk about those together. First of all, seeing the incomparable God. Look again there in verses 12 uh, through 17. Isaiah kind of goes through and he, he, he begins to teach and we, we might even say catechize the nation of Israel about the character of God. He uses a catechism, uh, which is a way of teaching based on questions and answers. He asks six, maybe even seven questions, depending on how you divide it there in those first verses, starting in verse 12. They're all who questions. And the answers to the questions are so obvious that you might even call them rhetorical questions, meaning he doesn't even have to answer them out loud anyway because he assumes that just when he asks them, the answer is going to already come to your mind. For example, verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? There's really only one, you know, one answer that could possibly be there. If there is an answer to that question, there can only really be one. In fact, it gives us a really great picture, doesn't it, of who God is, a portrait of God. I mean, just pick up your hand for a minute and put it in front of you, flat. Do you see where it looks like a riverbed or a lake bed there? That's the hollow of your hand. This is saying, 
Who can take all the waters of the earth? By the way, there's a lot of water in the earth, right? I don't remember what the percentage is, but it's like 75% or something of the waters of the earth is covered in water. Sometimes 20,000, 30,000 foot deep. Who can put all that water in the hollow of his hand? Crazy picture to get your mind around. And yet the answer is obvious. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. Same thing uh, if you continue. With the breadth of his hand, he marks off the heavens. So hold out your hand this way. That's the breadth of your hand. What can you measure with the breadth of your hand? Maybe a loaf of bread. You know, maybe a, a cell phone. What can God measure with the breadth of his hand? The heavens. The sky. I mean, outer space. Think about how vast outer space is. Uh, I once uh, read where a, you know astrophysicists began to kind of give a picture. I took astronomy in college, and the astrophysicists gave a picture of what heaven, what space is like, which, by the way, we don't even know how big it is. Some people even think it's rapidly expanding as we speak because the further we look out, the further it is to look. It's amazing. And this uh, physicist said this, Imagine the distance from the earth to the sun, which is actually 92 million miles from the earth to the sun. Imagine that distance was um, symbolized by the, the width of a piece of paper or, or the, the uh, thickness of a piece of paper. That's the earth to the sun, 92 million miles. This physicist said, in order to get from the earth to the nearest star, you would need a stack of paper 70 feet high. If this is the earth to the sun, you need 70 feet high of this to get to the nearest star. To get to the end of the galaxy, just the Milky Way galaxy, you need a stack of paper 310 miles high. And that's just to get to the end of the neighborhood that the earth is in. Again, we try to look beyond that and it just keeps going and going and going. God can measure that with the breath of his hand. You see what Isaiah is doing? He's asking these questions that we know the obvious answer to, or at least we should. And he's giving us, in each question, a brilliant picture, like, a, like he's painting a portrait of just how immense God is. He weighs the dust of the earth in a basket. He weighs the mountains on scales, the hills in a balance. Verse 13, who can fathom the Spirit of God? To fathom is to measure the depth like you do in the ocean. You cannot fathom how deep God goes. Who could possibly instruct the Lord? Does God need a teacher? Does he need a counselor? Does he need an assistant to kind of give him a heads up on things? Uh, no, the answers are no, because look at verse 15 to 17. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. Even Lebanon itself, which is known for its cedar trees even today, forests and forests of cedar trees, even Lebanon is not sufficient for the altar fires that would need to be burned to praise the Lord. The animals of the world uh, of Lebanon are not enough for the burnt offerings. The nations are like nothing. He regards them as worthless in comparison to him. See what Isaiah is doing? He wants us to be sure that we remember accurately just how powerful God is just how wise God is, and just how valuable or worthy God is. Those are the three things he's outlining there. Power, wisdom, and worth. In each of those three ways, you cannot count up how far it goes with God. 
And there's nothing in all the world, even whether it's something that we invent or it's something that already exists in the world, there's nothing that can even begin to rival God in those three areas or any other area besides those three areas. But there's a reason why we need to be reminded of those three areas. Because when it comes to power, we look for other sources of strength, don't we? Sometimes we look even just at our own little selves. When it comes to wisdom, we look for other counselors, other people to give us advice besides God. Not that advice is bad, but you see what I'm saying. You can't replace God's advice or God's word. And when it comes to worthiness, we treat ourselves and other things like they have a worth that could somehow rival the Lord to where worshiping those things is just as important as worshiping God. Why is Isaiah so concerned about this? Because the most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God. It's going to shape everything you do. It's going to shape everything you think. It's going to shape every decision you make. You say, well, I don't even believe in God. I think you're wrong. Well, just not believing in God has already shaped what you think, say, and do. So therefore, you are a theologian too. Every person is a theologian. Everybody. You say, what does that mean? Every person has some idea about God in their mind. I don't know where you got it, but you got it. Everybody. The question is, you're either a good theologian or a bad one. And the way that you become a good one is you are one in light of the word, what God has said about himself. The Bible says no man or woman has ever seen God face to face, but we have certainly heard many, many things from Scripture about him. It's why Isaiah says it twice. Have you not heard? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Because God has not stopped telling us about himself. And so someone who's become a good theologian is someone who's learned to see God through the lenses, almost like glasses, of the Bible. To get 20-20 vision based on God's Word rather than the broken, you know, cracked, smudged glasses that we normally wear by our own limitedness and our own sin. Relational problems, you can think about this in your own life, relational problems tend to stem from bad views of the other person, don't they? You stop trusting someone because you start to be suspicious of them. Uh, Maybe that suspicion is warranted. Maybe it's not. Either way, a bad view shapes how you approach them. Reminds me of the Shakespeare play Othello, which I read when I was a senior in high school. You probably did too because it's been read with seniors for a long time. And the story, if you know it, is, is about how Othello ends up murdering his wife, Desdemona, because he thinks she has not been loyal to him. But if you know the story, she has actually been loyal to him. It's just his friend, Iago, has been planting little seeds of doubt, little seeds of, of distrust in Othello's mind until it begins to drive him crazy. And, and everything he sees about her, everything he hears from her, he begins to view through the lenses of what Iago has lied to him about. Isaiah says the same thing. If you have not put on the glasses of Scripture by the Holy Spirit's work, you are believing lies, the lies of Iago, the lies of your own heart, the lies of the world about who your maker is. And it is, whether you recognize it or not, it's affecting your relationship with him, your ability to trust him, your ability to obey him. This morning, how do you see God? How do you see him? Do you recognize that that just might be this morning the most important thing about you right now? 
And might it also be true that the most spiritually great thing you could have happen to you this morning is that you would simply see him in his word, high and lifted up. I mean, as a church, we have really very little else to offer you this morning except for behold your God. But actually, that's the greatest thing that can possibly be offered to you. Behold your God. That's the first thing. Secondly, Isaiah tells us about playing the comparison game because this whole idea that God is incomparable in his power, his wisdom, and in his worthiness is something that we have a a devil of a hard time accepting. We have a terrible time accepting that. Why? Because we're addicted to comparing and we're addicted to complaining. Isaiah unfolds that there in uh, verses 18 uh, through 27. Notice there in verse 18, With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? He says the same thing in verse 29, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see. Look at the heavens. Look at who I really am. And then in verse 27, if you look at that, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? They're comparing and they're complaining, and the two things are very, very connected in their hearts. Very connected. I'm going to warn you, this is going to be pretty convicting, what I'm about to tell you. But it's really important for us to kind of grasp it. Uh, Isn't it true, say, for example, at work, that uh, when someone who's new, it's their first day on the job, say they make a mistake, a critical mistake, isn't it true that you're going to kind of let that slide a little bit more than you would if the most senior person on the staff made that same mistake? You're going to let it slide because one person has an excuse. What's the excuse? I mean, what are they going to say? Guarantee you they're going to say this. I'm sorry, I didn't know. It was never told me. I haven't learned that yet. I haven't gotten to that point in my training. But the senior staff member can't say that because, of course, she did know, right? She knew. She's known for years. What Isaiah is saying here about comparing and complaining against God, he says, is not an issue of I didn't know. Uh, You will not be able to get before God one day, and everybody will, by the way, get before God. God will get you there. You're going to stand before him. On that day, you're not going to be able to plead ignorance. You're not. Uh, You may plead ignorance now. I may plead ignorance now. But on that day, it will not be an acceptable excuse because from the beginning, you should have known better. Because everything you've ever received, you received from God's hand. Therefore, you knew he's powerful. Your life, when you, didn't, when you were making decisions as hard as you could to destroy your life, and yet God was making decisions to save your life, you knew he was wise. You knew it. All along, you've, you've learned, probably many of you from childhood have heard at least parts of the Bible. You've at least heard parts of songs and hymns of praise. You, you knew he was worthy. You knew. And yet, and I knew, and yet, what have we been doing? Comparing God. God, is there somebody else better out there? Is there something else out there that I can do business with that's a little bit easier to do business with than you? Can I modify you a little bit, tailor you to suit my tastes? That's what they were doing. That's why he says there, you know, in verse 18, who will you compare me to? As for an idol, verse 19, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold. And if they can't afford that, they pick a nice piece of wood, and they, build a, they make sure they build a good prop for it so it doesn't fall over. 
You're supposed to laugh at that because it's ridiculous to worship something that you make. It's ridiculous. And yet every time we worship the resume or the bank account or uh, the compliments that people pay us or even we worship maybe our children and we worship our spouse and we, I mean, you can worship anything. Is it not just as foolish that you're ascribing worth to something that actually is going to run out one day versus ascribing worth to a God who never will run out? who's going to always stay perpetually the same? That's Isaiah's argument here. Well, notice, you, you may say, well, I don't do that. I've never built an idol. I've never bowed down to one. I don't even know why you're telling us this. Uh, verse 27, I know you've complained. I've heard you. <laughs> We've all complained. I, I, I complain. And Isaiah's simple question is, why have you complained? Why do you complain? Why do you say God doesn't see me? I mean, why? Here's the convicting part. If you think you're not comparing God, but yet you recognize in your life a spirit of complaint or a, a mode of living that is filled with complaining, guess what? The only reason you're complaining is you're comparing. So you gotta, you're going to have to convince me of that, Okay. We've said around here there is good complaint and there is bad complaint, and I agree, I believe in that. In, in the Psalms, there are complaints, and some of them are good ones. But here's a good complaint. Oh, God, I know that you have an answer to this problem. I don't. I'm frustrated by it. I bring it to you. And, Lord, I don't know why it is this way. I, I hope you would fix it. I wish you would fix it. I wish you would at least show me yourself. That's good complaint. Bad complaint is what he's talking about right here, which is grumbling, uh, discontentedness, uh, God, you know, I, I don't know if I can trust you. Uh, I'm going to go away from you with my difficulty rather than towards you. I'm going to hide. I'm going to try to figure out my own way because obviously, God, your way is not working. That's bad complaint. And even though we may not be so bold as to say what it says there in verse 27, we may not be as bold to look God in the face, if you will, and say, God, you're not even looking at me. Yet, every time we complain in a bad way about our circumstances or about other people or about all these things, we're complaining against God. I mean, y'all, at the end of the day, we got to come to this conclusion. Either God is the Lord of heaven and earth or he's not. Either he is or he isn't. <laughs> and if he is, then the Bible says every part of your life in one way or the other is God's school, his classroom for you. To complain in a bad way against God's lessons that he's trying to teach you is a complaint against God. And the only reason why we would complain against God is that at some level we're doubting his power, his wisdom, or his worthiness. We're thinking maybe something else out there has greater power, greater wisdom, greater worthiness. That's why I say if you're a complainer, you're a comparer. And if I'm a complainer, I'm a comparer. At the end of the day, every one of us are. <laughs> The problem of idolatry is the problem of the human heart. One old writer said famously, the human heart is a factory of idols. And he's just pumping them out. We have an assembly line going of things that we worship besides God. Everything I touch, I can turn into an idol. Do you recognize that about yourself? I mean, at the end of the day, that's the sin underneath the sin. 
when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just saying, oh, you broke the speed limit and God's going to come arrest you and give you a ticket. No, sin in the Bible is in a personal affront to God. Rooted in comparing God, therefore wanting to, com- wanting to complain against Him and grumble against Him in your life. So Isaiah says, you've got to have a whole new portrait. The way to turn from comparing and complaining is contemplating. Contemplating. We've got to stop comparing and, st- and stop complaining against God and start contemplating Him more. Thinking about Him. Beholding Him. Looking at Him. Because a new vision of God, the one like Isaiah is giving us here, is able to convince us at a deep level of His power, wisdom, and worth so that we exchange one hope for another. That's the third thing I want to talk to you about, is making the hope exchange. This is the last thing. Uh, You can see it there in verses 28 to 31. Isaiah comes, comes full circle there and he says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord. You see? What needs to happen in our lives is we need to exchange our hope in ourselves and in other created things for hope in God. And the Bible says when we do that, God will bring in a whole new kind of strength into our lives. Do you remember the show Trading Spaces on TV? It was a great show, right? I mean, it's like all of those, and all of them are kind of the same, but this one had a unique <laughs> aspect to it where one family would trade houses with another, and one family would redecorate a room of one family's house, and the other family would redecorate the room of the other family's house. And the whole premise behind that is, man, I am just, I don't have an eye for what needs to be done in this room. I've tried things, and I can't make it look nice. And so I need to call somebody else in with fresh eyes, fresh skills, fresh perspective to come do their magic that I obviously don't have. That's the whole idea behind the show, Trading Spaces. And what Isaiah is saying there is, in a way, that's the way our lives are, right? We have tried, and you have tried, to do life your way. Right? You've tried to hope in your own strength. You've done it. Now, here's the question. How's that been going for you? Where has that led your life? Where is that leading your life? Don't you need a far greater set of eyes and hands? Eyes and hands that don't go slack, that don't hang down, that don't become tired. Don't you need that? If you'll trade your hope in yourself, you'll find that. Scripture says here, you'll find it. Notice how he says, even youths will grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. And the word for young men there, you could say it's strapping young men. Like it's not just young men, it's young men who are fit. I mean, this is athletes in peak condition. This is Navy SEALs. And we all know that even athletes get tired and have to sit on the bench and take some Gatorade. Even even Navy SEALs have to take, take a nap. That's how limited people are. And yet we tend to trust in our own strength. We tend to trust in our own fitness and our own wisdom. And yet we're not even thinking that that strength and that fitness and that wisdom is, it's like the clock is ticking on it. It is going to run out. There's only one person who has a strength that will never run out. If you'll take your trust from yourself and put it in God, instead of the, here's what happens when I trust myself, instead of the pride and despair... I mean, let me just give you an insight into how your life works, if, if you'll let me. 
If you're trusting in yourself, when things are going well, you're proud. You're looking down at other people. You're like, man, I've finally accomplished it. I've arrived. Look at what I've done. Man, my life is great. And it's because, at least in some way, look what I, that I've accomplished some things. I've worked hard. I've worked harder than them, for sure. Pride. But when things are not going well, you're having a bad day, bad week, bad month, bad year. What is it? Despair. I can never measure. I can never be good enough. Oh, I'm just a terrible person. Depression. Sinking feeling all the time in my heart. But then things start going well, and boom, I'm back to looking down on people. It's like riding a seesaw, isn't it? That's a little window into the way our lives naturally go. We ride a seesaw between pride and despair. That is, that is a, the first line of evidence that you're comparing and complaining against God. That you need to make a hope exchange. <laughs> because it says here, when you make the hope exchange and put your hope in God, you will have your strength renewed. You will soar on wings like eagles. You will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not faint. I think all of us will agree. Those kinds of strength are supernatural. Nobody in the world can run and not get tired. Just keep on running, running, running. Not even Forrest Gump. Right? Not even, nobody could do it. Nobody can walk and walk and walk and never have to sit down. And surely nobody can start flying around like an eagle. What God is promising here is a supernatural source of life. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, what we read earlier in the service. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. If you depend on flesh yourself, you'll just produce what yourself can produce, which is tiredness, weariness, weakness, limitedness. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. If you'll come to me, Jesus says, Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. I will lift you up. It's like you'll grow wings in your life. And if you've ever seen an eagle fly, you know there's something special about how an eagle flies. Very different, for example, than a hummingbird. Right? You've seen a hummingbird? I mean, those jokers, it never stops. I mean, they've got to be sore, right? Because it's just, bzzz, I mean, you can't even see it. I mean, the, the wings never quit. Because they, their wings are tiny, and just keeping themselves up is just—it uh, looks like hard work. I don't want to be a hummingbird, and I'm glad that it says here you will fly like a hummingbird. But if you see an eagle, its wings are so massive that you never—you never will see an eagle go like that, right? <laughs> you, you never see it. Eagles get up high, high, real high, and it's just like this surfing the wind, effortless, fast though, quick, but effortless. Come to me, Jesus says, all you hummingbirds who labor and are heavy laden, and I will make you soar on the wings of the wind by my grace and by my spirit. In other words, this morning, it's exactly what I said. Spiritual progress in your life today depends on you being able to not look inward anymore, but look upward. Stop looking inward so much. Stop looking to yourself for the solutions to your life problems all the time. Stop thinking that you can do it yourself. You need to trade spaces. You need to trade hopes. 
Start looking up to God. Because let me tell you, God revealed himself never better than he revealed himself on the cross. When in the person of his son Jesus, he willingly gave his life for you and me. What happened at the cross? The youth and the young men fainted and grew weary. Didn't they? Simon Peter, who boasted in himself, denied Jesus and went away crying while Jesus was dying on the cross. All the other disciples fled and went and hid. Some of them even betrayed him, like straight up just denied him. All of them abandoned Jesus, every one of them. And it was only Jesus left with the very strength of God to endure the cross, to endure the grave, to endure hell for me and you. So that when he rose from the dead, he can give you those wings. He can give you that supernatural store of strength. Everybody's a theologian. Everybody sees God one way or the other. Even if it's, I don't believe in him at all, you see, you see him as a, non, as a nothing. Do you see him? How you see him. It's very critical. Because if you do not see him as he sees himself, as he reveals himself in Scripture, you will not ever make the hope exchange that gives you true spiritual life rather than just your own whatever you can muster kind of do-it-yourself religion. 